This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All right, so we are coming very close to Pesach, and um, so so what the part that I want to focus on is is uh, there's a certain custom that we do on Pesach that almost makes very little sense, and that is the custom of, of yachatz. Yachatz, what we do is we take the we have three matzot, we take the middle matzah out, we break it, we take the larger half, we hide it. Then there is a custom for like many, uh, the many people have this custom is that they have the kids go and, and I'm using air quotes now to go steal it. And once the kids go and they steal it, they go and then they have this negotiation panel with their parents. Uh, the parents, so they bring back this matzah, uh, you know, at the end of the meal after this, this matzah is hidden all the way till the end. The child go finds it. Once the child finds it, he hides it now or she hides it. Then at the end, the parent says, okay, we need this for Afikoman because it's the matzah we use for Afikoman. So the child says, all right, like a little terrorist, um, I will give it back to you, but I want the new iPhone 7. And the father says, I'll give you the iPhone 6 plus. Uh, I'll give you the iPhone 6. And the kid says, iPhone 6 plus. And they're like the negotiation. Finally, they come to a conclusion from which, uh, well, what present they want. And, uh, and, and they, and they make the switch. The point is that the kids need to be up during the Seder. It's a long, the Passover Seder night, it's a long, it's a long process. You know, you go through the story, then you eat, and then you're practicing reclining without spilling your drinks on your, all over yourself. And you're doing all these, all these, uh, all these things, and you want the children to stay up. So as a way to stay up, they, they take something, and we're gonna need it at the end. So it's something, yeah, it's on. So it's something that they're, they're gonna still, they're gonna be up and alert. My question is, 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 I understand that we need to keep the kids up. But why can't we give them something more illegal? Maybe, why, does it have to be thievery? Does it have to be stealing? Like, is that where we, you know, like, this is going to be kept the kids up? And granted, it is. There is more reasons for it. But, but let's try and understand why specifically, you know, we're hiding it, they're finding it, and then there's a negotiation panel back and forth to, to figure it out. So, to, to, uh, understand this, I want to share with you this amazing, amazing story. This, um, Story happened in the time of the Holocaust, and uh, there was once a um, there was once a couple. I'm sure you guys know these. There's certain types of couple that everyone's like, okay, this is like the perfect couple. Like these guys were meant for each other. Like this woman, uh, this was this type of couple. The woman was, you know, an unbelievably beautiful woman, and the guy was unbelievably handsome. Both have unbelievable midot. They have great character traits. They are amazing people, kind people, uh, and you know, like when they meet each other, be like, you know what? You deserve that guy, and or you deserve that girl because you're so awesome. It was one of those types of of unbelievable, uh, um, you know, just just a match. Everything worked so perfectly, and the marriage was so unbelievable. It was an amazing marriage. It, for, they lived two years in the most honeymoon phase ever. You know, like usually people aren't in fetch. You know, you have like friends that just got engaged, or they just got you know. So what are they doing? Nonstop, they're texting on their phone. For like for like they don't live in the outside world anymore. They said so they're sucked into this, you know, this relationship that usually goes away after you know a few months. Sometimes a year, sometimes whatever. So it was two years, and these guys were still in the infatuation stage. So they, um, you know, the the, the the there was word out that the Nazis are coming closer to town, and they go and they say, uh, you know, people start saying, you know, like it's best to get out. We heard what the Nazis were doing. This is the early 1940s. We heard what the Nazis were doing, um, and the Jews were trying very hard to get visas, procure visas to leave. So. This guy Abe was working around the clock getting visas for him and his wife so they could get out of there. And, uh, you know, for some reason he was able to procure a visa for her, for Sarah, for his wife, but for himself he wasn't able to get any visa. And, you know, time was coming closer. He had some, you know, different background and it was, it was just more difficult for him to get the back, to, to get the visa out. So, <clears throat> you know, the, the word out on the street was that the Nazis are coming to town within, um, within, within two days. And if you want to leave, now's the time. Otherwise you're not leaving. So, 
Abe calls, uh, you know, one, you know, he comes home that evening to, to his wife, uh, Sarah, and he says, um, you know, it's time to go. And she's like, what do you mean time to go? Where are we going? He says, you don't have a visa yet. We can't go anywhere. So he says, uh, I'm not going anywhere, but you're going somewhere. And she's like, not going to happen. No, I'm not. I'm not going anywhere. And he, and Abe goes to Sarah and he says, listen, I need you to go. You're going, you're going. I want you to go to America. You have an aunt in California in LA. I want you to go to LA. So she's like, not going to happen. So I'm not leaving you. And he's like, so he goes to her. He's like, he's like, what do you, how do you think I'm going to feel? If something, God forbid, happens to you because of me, is I need you to, to leave. And she's like, you can need me, you can want me, it doesn't matter. Wherever you go, I go. I can't physically be away from you. So they, um, they, they, uh, they go and they, um, and they decide that, the, um, that he's not going to take no for an answer anymore. And he goes and he gets, the next day he gets a, a train ticket outside, uh, out for, for his wife Sarah. And he goes to uh, um, the next day and you know, the, the, it's a, he doesn't even tell her about this. And an hour before the train leaves, he goes over to her and he says, um, and he starts packing up her bags. And she sees he's packing up her stuff and she's like, what do you think you're doing? And he's like, I'm packing up for you. And she's like, we're not going anywhere and I'm not going anywhere. You can pack all you want. And, you know, he's, you know, he puts down the suitcase and he looks her in her, in, you know, in her eyes and says, you know, my love, I, I love you so much. And, and I'm begging you, I cannot and I will not be able to live with myself if I know that something happened to you because of me. I am begging you for me. Please go for me. And I'm going to come right afterwards. I'm working on a visa. I almost got it. In a few days, I'm right behind you. And, you know, her eyes start swelling up in tears. And she, you know, she realizes, she's like, you know, he's right. And she says, you know, you know, but, but at the same time, she doesn't want to, yeah, thank you. Uh, she, she doesn't want to, uh, she doesn't, she doesn't want to leave him. So he goes and, uh, the entire time that he's packing, thank you, the entire time that he's packing up her bag, she's sitting on the couch crying, bawling, crying. And, uh, you know, the, the, he finishes, he brings, he wheels out the suitcase and he says it's time to go. And she literally flies from the couch into his arm and giving him the strongest hug and not letting him go. And, you know, and, and she's like, and she whispers to him, she's like, please don't make me go. Please. And, you know, he's like trying to hold up his emotion as a man and it's, you know, and his eyes are swelling up with tears and he's like, he's like, it's only for a few days, I'm gonna be right behind you. And then he goes on and he says, listen, and if, and if I can't get it for you within a few days and the, the, the Germans come in, don't worry, I'll be right behind you, I'll be with you shortly. So, he, she goes and she starts crying. She, she, the, the second that he's like, you know, all right, time to go. We're going to miss the train. She just holds him tighter. It's like a beer hug, you know, like a, one of those uh, cobra snakes, you know, that keep on, uh, you know, tighter and tighter. Um, and yeah, thank you. I knew it wasn't the cobra. So um, she goes and, and he says, you know what? I have an idea. He goes back then, you know, they had, he went to his photo, his wedding album. His wedding album consisted of one picture. It was back in the 1940s. I'm trying, you know, so he goes, uh, yeah. So he goes to, uh, he goes to her and he says, listen, he says, I understand that it's hard for you. Um, take this, take this wedding picture. It's our wedding picture. It's the only picture that we have. When you get to LA, just put it up on the wall over there by your aunt's house, and this way you'll be able to remember me. And we'll, as if we are together, we'll be together very soon. And she takes a picture and she takes it out of the frame. He's figuring, out, okay, it's hard to travel with the frame. I understand. Um, and then, to his horror, she looks it in the middle and she rips it in half. It's like, what is she doing? She crazy? It's like that's our only wedding picture. And she's, like, I'm not taking no picture. She gives him, she, they, she rips it right, be, right between him and her. And she gives him her picture, and she takes his picture. And says, I'm not putting up anything. Says, when you come to me, we're going to reattach this picture, and we're going to put it together in our house. And he says, you know, 
beer deal. And he goes and he puts it and he puts it into her uh, into his pocket and he makes a way out. They make the way out to the train station. They get to the train station and uh, they um, they they you know she she boards the train and you know they get the the final goodbyes and she runs over to him and she says you know I am begging you please please don't leave me for long I cannot bear to live without you and he's like I, I promise I'll be I'll, I'll be there as soon as I possibly can and she gets she boards on the train and she leaves he goes and he starts working around the clock trying to get this to, trying to get the visa trying to get him out of, out of uh, um, you know to get him out out, out of uh, the, the town so he could get uh, to America he's working around the clock the, the, he hears the time is ticking the Germans are coming the Germans are coming and before you know it he starts the Germans are here you hear the gunshots you hear the screaming and the yelling and you know everybody's scrambling then no one knows what to do so he's looking around he realizes you know the Germans are coming it's not going to be like okay I have some luggage I need to take I hear it's nice this time of the year in the concentration camps he goes and he figures he's going to have one, one thing that he could possibly sneak the only thing that he's going to sneak is that little picture and he goes and he sews a secret compartment to his coat and he slips that, that, that picture inside over there and he goes and he gets whisked away by the Germans and they bring him into a labor camp and it's you know I don't have to describe what, what goes on in the concentration camps and the labor camps it was, it was you know people would rather die than live through what they lived through. They, they actually, some of them, you know, just wanted to, to end it all. They literally saw their own children die in front of them. Their own parents got shot in front of them. It, they, some of them actually had to dig their own graves and then get shot inside. Some of them dig their own wife's graves and then they watched as their wife and their little kids got shot into the grave. And then they got sent back to the barracks and go live with that. So... There are many people known as the walking dead men. I believe the, the terminology is Muslim men. Yeah. So, um, relax, hear the story. So he goes and, and he, um, and he, he, uh, and he's he's walking around, and people are turning to be to be you know like walking dead people. They're like not they don't want to live anymore, and everybody picked their own thing that they were able to like drag them through those these, deep, the, these like difficult times. Somebody you know had a sister living in a far you know place, and he's like you know as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to go there and be reunited with my family. And each one held their own thing. He had one thing that was going for him, and that was this little picture. And every you know every night he would go and he would take out this picture, and he would start talking to this picture and it became like his bunkmates realized you know something like switched off a little bit over there because he literally had full-on conversations with this picture he'll be like i'll see you soon i love you i miss you so much and then you know the next day is like you know today was a tough day and he's like continued conversations as if it was yesterday it's like as i was saying yesterday you know they were really hard on me i'm working out in the field and he's literally having this conversation with this picture and the bunkmates were like you know Dude, it's it's a picture. You, what are you doing? But they realize that this is the one thing that's getting him to go on. And they're like, whatever. Talk to that. Talk to a tennis ball. Doesn't matter if this is what gets you to the 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 will to survive. By all means, continue talking to it. So the bunkmates didn't say anything. He would have long conversations through the night with his with his picture, and they wouldn't say a thing about it. You know, three years go by this way. He saw his 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 family, his best friends, all die in front of him, and uh, the word is out. They're out work it was one spring day. You know, it was a hot, day, particularly hot day, and they were working out in the fields. And the word was out among the the, the inmates that uh, you know the, the Americans are coming in, and they're 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 liberating already the part of the camp. So you know, everyone was excited. You know, when you're, you're talking about that, you get all enthusiastic. It's you know, you lighter, and the day starts going by faster. And it was getting really hot, so yeah. Um, so yeah, so they, he takes off his. Uh, they all take off their coat. They throw it in the pile, and they're working out. They're talking and be like, "Oh, what are you going to? So what are you going to do when you get out? You know, like, oh, I'm going to get a hamburger." No, it was a, and it says, "You know, I'm going to go see my family. I'm going to go." Everyone said what they were going to do. So um, you know, the end of the day, they get round up and they start marching the way back. 
Halfway through there, the way back to the barracks, the guy suddenly realizes, Abe suddenly realizes, oh my god, I left my coat. I left my coat over there. And he's like, he's like, this is, ter-. he's like, he's like, so the guys were like, forget about it, it's hot, we don't need the coat, we'll get it tomorrow. Be like, dude, it's not about the coat, it's what's hidden inside there, I got my picture inside there. So, he was, he was getting, he was going bananas, he was like, it's like, I need to go back. And he's like, looking away for it to break away. And the guy behind him literally like pinches him, and he says, he says, you're gonna stay right here. He says, don't be an idiot and run out of line, because if you run out of line, and the Germans are very meticulous. If you slipped out of line, you got shot. They shoot, shoot first, ask questions later. They shoot first, they don't even ask questions later, they just shoot. So, um, they, he goes and, and he's like, you know what, you're right, I can't do it now. He gets back into the bunk and he becomes this nervous wreck. He's wreck, he's walking back and forth, he's like, I need to get the picture. And he goes, who am I gonna talk to? I need to get the picture. And he's like, he's like, you know what? And he speaks to his bunkmates, he's like, tonight I'm sneaking out, I'm gonna get my picture. And the bunkmates were like, you're doing no such thing. That's a death sentence. He's like, he's like, what are you gonna go get a picture? You heard, we're getting liberated in a few days. Just wait. Better to be alive. Speak to your wife when you're alive. What are you gonna be worth a dead man with a picture so he's like he's like no i can't i can't going back and forth when there's one guy in the bunks uh, that in his bunk he stands in front of the door and he goes to him and says listen abe he says over my dead body are you crossing over this threshold you're not i lost enough family over here he says you guys are all i have left i'm not losing another brother and abe saw that he realized that he's not getting anywhere and he's like he's like you know what fine he gave in he says you know what fine I, we'll take care of it tomorrow and they all go to sleep. They're all laying in bed. And meanwhile, everyone, you know, from the exhaustions, from the work, and from the stress, they all just pass out. And Abe is sitting there wide awake. He can't go to. He usually every night he has a ritual. He speaks to his wife before he goes to bed. And he he's like he's like you know he's trying to make himself dizzy. He's going back and forth. Nothing is doing. Sleep is not coming. Uh, hour goes by. Two hours goes by. And he's like you know what? Forget about it. I can't. He gets up. He's like I'm going to get the picture. He's like I can't. What happens if a raccoon takes it? What happens if this takes it? So so no no no. So um, especially not in their situation. So he goes and he, he you know he peeks out through the through the back window in the in the bunk. He sees that the coast is clear and he jumps out the back window. Now the, these these were all heavily guarded, but the inside itself wasn't there wasn't a there wasn't a guard in every in every bunk. So yeah, the whole area was guarded. Was you know the fence then you know everything was uh, was was heavily guarded, but inside the camps you were able to you would be able to sneak around. So <clears throat> he sneaks out of the out of the back and he and he goes behind bunk to bunk in the shadows, waiting every time and, and every every so often there's there's uh, you know German SS officers patrolling. He stops by, he sees a German and he hides for like a half hour to make sure that the coast is completely clear. He's like, I'm gonna do it but I'm gonna do it right. So I don't care if it takes me two hours <clears throat> or three hours. And he goes and he starts making way from shadow to shadow, from bush to bush. Literally, like like what things would have taken normally of half hour walk, it took him over two hours to get there. He gets he nears the the work area that he was where he dropped his coat, and suddenly he hears uh, you know a truck coming down the main road, and he's like he's like a truck. He's, he's like lights flashing. A truck is like he's like it's like two a.m. Germans don't come in at two a.m. with like a late delivery. Germans everything was meticulous. Everything was to the T. They never come in. He's like, why is there a truck coming here? That's very odd. And he started getting very nervous. So he hid. He hid for another for another half hour to make sure there was no trucks coming and nothing out of the ordinary. Once he felt that the coast was clear, he gets up and he makes his way to the coat. The coat was in a was a, it was in a large pile. So he grabs the coat and he swings it over over and he quickly grabs the back pocket to see if something is in there. And then he dashes back to his hiding spot. And he feels he feels Freddy feels there's something there and he's like, okay, good. He feels relaxed. He feels like he's got his wife back. And he starts making his way back. And again, the same scenario. It's like from bush to bush. And suddenly, <clears throat> he gets uh, he gets a little bit closer to his camp, and he hears he hears shouting and loud noises and screaming. And he starts, you know, his house now it's pounding. He's like he's like, oh man, maybe I'm caught. I'm done. You know, they they hear something's gone. And he's sitting in the spot. He waits another half hour. 
he hears that the, the, you know, the noise dies down, and he continues making his way back to the bunks. About an hour or so later, he reaches his bunks, and he's going from shadow to shadow. The second he sees his bunk, he looks up, and he freezes. And he sees the bunk light is open. And it's like four in the morning at this point. And he's like, he's like, why is the bunk light? It's not, it, it never happens at open. And he's like, and then he's like, oh no. He's like, they came, they, they probably did this random check in the middle of the night. They did a head count. And they see that I'm not there. And he's like, this is not good. And he's like, what, what should I do? So he hides over there waiting to see what's going to happen. He hears voices talking and there's nothing happening. The lights are just open. So he's like, that's very odd. So he sneaks behind, you know, from bunk bunk, gets closer. He peeks into his own bunk <clears throat> from his, from, from the outside. What he sees shakes his entire world. He turns white and he starts rolling on the floor back and forth crying. See, the entire place was filled with blood. Bodies were everywhere. The, the limbs were like the, the the Nazi went and they. That could be I said. Okay, so I apologize. So so uh, the, so so he goes and and he's sitting over there and I didn't realize I said it over here. I apologize. So uh, but it's still it's an important lesson. So he goes and he starts waddling back and forth like a baby on the floor. He gets in his fetal position and he's walking back and forth. He's like, I killed my brothers. I killed my brothers. I killed my brothers. And he's, he's literally going insane. He's like, he thinks that they did, you know, they did a random spot check in the middle of the night. They did a head count. They saw one person was missing. So the German officer said, where's this guy? That's what happened. And they said, you know, they, they didn't want to give him up. So they all died because of me. And he's like, no, he's like, and he's, and he's, and he's flipping out. He's going crazy. And as he's crying, as he's, you know, he sees, he looks at the next bunk over and he sees that their lights open also. And he's like, wait, that's odd. He's like, why is their light open also? So he goes, he goes to the, he climbs into the, you know, to the next bunk. He peeks in, same scenario. And then it dawns upon him. He says, you know what happened? He says, he heard this happening. So the Germans realize that, the, you know, they're getting liberated. The, you know, the, the Americans are coming. So they try to kill as many Jews as they possibly can in order just to get, uh, um, you know, just the, the most important thing was for Hitler was to get the Jewish people uh, killed. And in fact, people, at, people there was his advisors came over to him and says, if we take some resources away from the killing of the Jews, we'll be able to fight the war more and more effectively. He's like, that's not our prerogative. Our prerogative is death right now. That's what we need to focus on. So he could figure what his, what's his focus was. And he realized this is what happened. And then he's like, so he's like, he's like, he feels a little bit relieved that it's not, wasn't because of him that they died. But now he's thinking, he's like, what should I do? What am I supposed to do? I am literally, you know, you know, they're going to come back. The Germans are going to count the bodies. They're going to see that one is missing the next morning. And not knowing what to do, so he climbs into his bunk, tears flowing freely. He goes and he starts um, ripping his clothes and take, apologizing to his brothers as he takes their blood and he smears it all over his body. He figures the best thing that he could do is to blend in. If he blends in, then he will be able to maybe, you know, uh, pass on and maybe somehow survive. So he's sitting over there, he's apologizing, crying, and he's going over, and, and, and he, you know, after like a few minutes, you know, he's, you know, he, he gets into this like crazy, like, like, like sobbing spree until he passes out, he falls asleep. He falls asleep and probably sleeping for, for not more than a half hour, the sun was already coming up, and he hears a truck pulling up. And voices coming, and he's like, "All right, you know, they're probably they're, they're shipping the bodies off to a mass burial." And he decides, you know, the best thing that he's going to do is play dead. And he plays dead, and he feels, and he hears, you know, the, the Nazis coming into to, to his barrack, and, and they're going, and they're picking up, you know, he feels people being moving, and then suddenly he gets picked up, and he's like playing as dead as he could, which it wasn't so hard because he was practically dead anyways. And um, he hears, you know, the Nazis, he feels somebody by his hands and by his feet, and then he gets he gets walked out, and then he starts feeling himself being swung from side to side. They realize they're going to chuck him somewhere. And they're swinging, and all of a sudden, he's airborne. And the last thing, the last noise that he remembers 
was the noise of his head hitting the metal bottom of the of the truck when he when he gets knocks on, knocks on, knocks out unconscious, and which was probably good because now he really looks dead. And he gets over there. The next time he wakes up, he is he feels tremendous pressure on him. He like wakes up and he really, he thinks like maybe he's buried alive. He's like I feel tremendous pressure. But then he looks he looks further. And he sees like there's a bunch of limbs everywhere. There's, you know, and then he realizes he could see the outside. He realizes he's in a bottle, he's in, a, he's in a pile of bodies. And, you know, so all the thing that he could do is just be still so that he could possibly survive. And he's dozing in and out. You know, he feels his head is a little bit wet. There must have been, you know, it must have been bleeding. And he's dozing in and out of consciousness. And then finally, he, uh, um, you know, there, there's like, he doesn't know if a day went by, two days went out, three. He's just getting weaker and weaker. And the pain is getting worse and worse. And he's, just, he's like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I'm throwing in the towel. And he's like, and he starts screaming, just shoot me. Just kill me. Just shoot me now. I'm done. I have nothing to, nothing to live for anymore. And he's screaming, just shoot me, just shoot me. Meanwhile, to the outside world, he's so weak that it's only, it's barely coming out as a whisper. And, uh, there was just so happened to be somebody was walking right past by and they see like, you know, some hand moving. So they, you know, he hears screaming, you know, something is going on and then he feels himself getting pulled out. And the last thing that he remembers before falling out, out unconscious again is is putting being placed on a stretcher. And him thinking, that's very odd. Why would they put me on a stretcher? And then he falls unconscious. Uh, he wakes up a short while later, and he is, you know, by the, you know, in in his makeshift hospital. And he looks around, and he's like, he's like, this is this doesn't usually happen. What's going on over here? And he sees like there's wires going on to him, so he starts getting nervous. Who knows? Maybe they're doing another experiment on him with Mendel. He starts trying to pull out the the wires and you know save himself. And meanwhile, there's there's a you know there's a nurse and a doctor inside, and they come. And they be like, no, 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 relax, relax. You know, you've been liberated. This is you know that we're the Americans. We came by. We there's just and they try to start explaining to him. You know, we, just, we there was some soldier that was walking past by. Pass by, uh, you know, inspecting this this pile of bodies, and uh, they were actually taking pictures as well. And we saw something move over there, and he grabbed you out of there. You were barely alive. You got to stay still. You're going to need at least a few weeks to, to maybe even possibly a few months just to get enough, you know, recover. Yeah, recuperate. So relaxed, you know, you know, slowly, you know, he's in the process of recuperating. About two months go by, and he gets uh, discharged from the hospital. And when they get discharged, they, they send him right away to the to the displacement uh, camps. And um, he goes into the displacement camp. And what they do over there is they look for for survivors. So he's going and he's looking for his fellow survivors, his you know his family members, his cousins, his this relatives, anybody that he knows. And he goes down the list from list to list to list to list. Everybody's everybody's on the dead side. There's like nobody that survived. And he's going and he tries a different list and nothing's ha- nothing's doing. He realizes all right, there's nothing left for me over here. I'm a free man. Let me go to uh, America. Let me make my way to America. So he decides, he goes and, you know, he makes the long journey to America. It took him a few weeks until he finally reaches, uh, you know, Los Angeles where he's, where he sent his wife. So he goes and, um, he, um, he, he ends up in his wife's front door and he knocks, uh, he rings a bell, knocks on the door and his aunt opens up the door and she stares at him and she was holding something, just fell crashing down white as a ghost. And he's like, you know, it's me, Abe. And she's like, and she's like, she couldn't even talk. She's like, She's like just nodding, and then he, he's like, you know, is Sarah here? And then you know she comes to her sentence, and she's like, she's like, she's like, no, I'm so sorry, Sarah, Sarah's not here. It's like, was like, what happened? Where's Sarah? And then the aunt says, you know, we thought you were dead. You know, we 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 inquired about you. Your entire your entire camp was was destroyed. They all said that you they they killed the entire the entire camp, the entire camp that you were at. So he's like. 
You know, he didn't even answer that. He's like, where is Sarah? He's like, he's like, I'm here now. Where is Sarah? He's like, why are you not answering me? Where, is Sarah here? And she's like, she's like, you know, no, Sarah's, not, you know, when she heard that you, that you died, she took it, she took it very hard. And, uh, she fell into severe, severe depression that we had to hospitalize her. Uh, she's, she's currently in the hospital, in the hospital and not in a good, uh, position. So Abe's like, it's like, what are you waiting for? Let's go. We're going to the hospital. And, and, you know, and it's like, yeah, 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 you know, and she goes and they, they start making the way to the hospital. As they get out on the way to the hospital, they pass by this flower shop. And he says, uh, do you mind, can we buy some flowers? And she's like, she's like, you know, Abe, you're not going to a surprise birthday party. You know, you didn't see her, your wife thinks you're dead. You didn't see her in over three years. Forget the flowers. Let's go. She doesn't need your roses. And he's like, he's like, listen, he's like, I, you know, what do you think? The doctors are going to let me just walk in there? It's like the shock alone might kill her. If she's such in a fragile state, the shock alone might, might kill her. Trust me, we're, you know, we need some flowers. So, she wants to listen to this, you know, seeing his wife for the first time, do whatever you want. They go and they buy a bunch of roses. He takes the roses, and as they get closer to the hospital, he takes out his picture. His picture, which is a picture of her, which is basically rubbed out from all the, the you know, bending and folding that it was gone through. And he puts the picture, and the second that, that his aunt sees the picture, she starts smiling with tears going up into her eyes. And she says, you know, you guys were really meant for each other. She's like, you know, Sarah had the same picture, always looking at it, and always with her at all times. And they get to the hospital, and he takes this picture, and he pins it to one of to the flowers. And he tells her, um, and he brings it to the to, to, his, to, his, to her aunt, and he says, listen, just give her this. That's, that's all I'm asking you to do. So I'm going to wait outside. So she says, fine. She goes, she walks into the hospital room, and Sarah is sitting there, bedbound, you know, not even, you know, looking straight at the ceiling. And she was not, she was even, she was not responding to many people. And, um, you know, the aunt says, you know, Sarah, your aunt is here. How are you doing? You know, no response. She's like, you know, um, you know, I have something for you. I have, I have some flowers. No response. But out of the corner of the eye, Sarah sees the flowers, and she sees something stuck to it. And she saw, like, it looked like, like a picture. So she quickly gets, she gets the most energy that she has gotten in days, and she sits up in bed for the first time in over, you know, a week, and she's like, she's like, give me the flowers, and she grabs the flowers, and she finds the, the you know, the, the, the little picture fell, and she looks at the picture, she picks up the picture, she like literally throws the flowers against the wall, and she looks at the picture, and she's like, who gave you this? And the aunt's like, you know, you know, the first time you're moving, and you're, you're so aggressive, she's like, there's a guy I would like you to meet. And she turns over to the door, and Abe, and she signals to Abe to walk in, and Abe walks in, and the first time that they two meet, their eyes meet, the entire, you know, the, the tears filled up and start streaming down the face. And, you know, Abe goes to her and he's like, he's like, Sarah? And Sarah goes to Abe and, and she's like, Abe? And for the next two, three minutes, all they're saying while tears are pouring down their eyes is just their names. He's like, Abe. And she's like, Sarah. You know, they're going back and forth, back and forth. You know, it was a very, very emotional uh, reunion. And he sat over there. Abe went over there, reunited with his wife. He sat with her and started, and he, he went to live in the hospital until she got better. He pulled up a chair and he lived in that room until she recuperated completely. And with his help, you know, uh, she really, she got back, you know, you know, uh, um, well, very quickly. And it is said that this couple, after, you know, they went and they ended up living, they stayed in, in Florida, in uh, California, in LA. And in their wall in the living room, you see they have, they kept the entire living room wall beer. And there's one tiny picture right in the center. On one side, you see Abe. On the other side is a very, very, you know, rubbed out picture of Sarah. When we're doing, and this is an unbelievable story that we can learn from uh, regarding regarding Pesach. Pesach, we do is we break the matzah. The big part we put on the side that is representing God. We're representing God. We're we're putting God over. You know, wait till the end because we need God throughout the entire sedel. And we're telling the kids something very very simple, and it's so fascinating, so amazing, it's so beautiful. We're telling the kids, you want stuff, right? They're like, yeah, we went to say, go find Afikoman. Because Afikoman, that's the, go find that hidden thing. That, that hidden matzah is represented by God. You want stuff in life? Go look for God. 
When you find God, and all of a sudden they find God, then they can demand whatever they want. When you have God in your life, whatever you want, you can take. That is, we, we you know why we hide it? Because God is hidden in our exile. We're living in a time when we're going, we're coming into the Pesach say there, and we're, we're, everyone telling you, hey, by the way, you're a king. Like, king, what are you talking about? I work for somebody. Or oh, I don't have a job. You're supposed to be happy. Happy? What do you mean? You know, nah, I don't have a wife. I don't have a husband. I don't have kids. I don't have a panasa. The people are going through so much problems in life. And comes Pesach all of a sudden, and we're supposed to be, you know, living like kings. And the question is how? And the answer is right over here. It's, it, you know how? When you find God. When you find God in your life, everything is going to go well. You're going to be able to take whatever you want. And we hide it because God is hidden. That's what we tell the kids. This is the lesson that we have for the kids. So you know what the lesson on, on Pesach is, is that we go and we say, look for God. Go look for God. I want to share with you. I don't know if I said that story. I hope I, I, I don't know if I said this story as well. Uh, the, um, usually people remember the story parts, not the actual uh, uh, that comes afterwards. It's an amazing story that Benish Chai says. So, he goes and he explains a little, the same idea regarding this concept. He says, uh, regarding the breaking of the matzah. He says that there was, uh, you know, once a bunch of three friends, a bunch, there was three friends. There were three friends that they, um, you know, they decided they're all gonna go learn in, in different colleges, you know, this is back in the olden days, so whatever it was back then, he's gonna, they're gonna learn, all learn sciences. And each one is gonna go in their own way. And they made a pact, they were really, really close buddies. They were like, let's all go learn whatever we decide to learn. Five years time from this day, we're meeting back exactly this this uh, this location. We're gonna have a few beers. We're gonna speak about our past five years. And they made a pact and fine. So they went on the each in their own ways, and they met. They made. They met. They met back five years later, and they're sitting over there. So they're all you know they're drinking. You know they're you know they're catching up, they're hugging, and saying what's going on. A long time no see. So they all sit down and be like, all right. Let's share our wisdom. What did you learn? Everyone says, you know, we see, let's see who learned the most, uh, you know, the, the, the most important thing. So one guy stands, the first guy stands up first. You hear the story? Did I say this one? I didn't say this one. Okay. So the first guy stands up and he goes and, and he says, I learned how to build a telescope. And they're like, oh, that's cool. What's a telescope? So they're like, oh, very simple. It's like, I'm going to, I create this, this, this piece of tube that you stand over here. You look through this little hole, and you can see miles and miles ahead. It's tremendous. You're able to see very far ahead. They're like, really? And like, yeah, let me show you. And he builds it up for them, and he shows them, and he says, you know, you see, and you can see very far away. They're like, wow, this is sick. This is unbelievable. They go to the next guy and says, uh, what did you, uh, what did you learn? He says, you know, I, I learned how to, uh, build a, a car. I know, I know, I'm a mechanic. I know how to build an automobile. They're like, well, you know, what's an automobile? It's like, oh, let me show you. You know how I got here? He says, well, how did you guys get here? He says, oh, we walked. We took a horse. <laughs> guys are old school. So look down there, and you see this like this like makeshift car with like wheels, and be like, you know, what is that? A wagon? Where's your horses? And he's like, he's like, oh, I don't need horses for that. I go in there and I drive. I could try. I could travel long distance in a very short period of time. And they're like, wow, it's like bless you. I was like, that's really cool. That's really amazing. So then they go to the last guy. Says, so what did you learn? Says I know. I know. I learned medicine. I went. I went to learn medicine, and I learned. I learned. I had. I found a medicine. I was able to create a medicine that cures any illness. They're like, wow, that's pretty impressive. So they're all like, listen. You know, we're all hanging out here. Let's try to, let's, let's use some of our, uh, you know, technology. So the guy with the telescope says, listen, let's, you know, we're standing over here. We're about, a, you know, two miles out from the, from the, from the palace. We can see the palace from here. Let's see what's going on in the palace. So like, sounds cool. So he builds a telescope and he, fo- and he, and he focuses on the, on the palace. And they're all looking at the palace and they see there's a commotion going on in the princess's room. They're like, what's going on over here? Why is there, they see doctors and everybody away. And they're like, you know, they're looking for like 10 minutes. Like they try to de- decipher what's going on. And they figure out, they're like, you know, the, the, the princess is very, very sick. There's a bunch of doctors that are all over. So the guy says, all right, let's, you know, jump in my car and we'll, let's travel, see if we can help her. Maybe we can do something. 
So all three of them jump in the car and they and they travel in a very short period of time. They're they're by the they're by the castle and they run into the castle and they say, you know, we we saw something is going on. You know, is everything okay? And the people in the castle said, you know, no, the the princess is very very sick and you know she you know the doctors gave up hope in her. So the guy says, it's like I'm a doctor. You know, I I, I learned medicine. He says I actually created a medicine that cures anything. So do you mind if I take a look? And they're like, if you can do that, you'll be greatly rewarded. So uh, they go and they rush this guy in. The guy goes and examines the princess and. And he says, it might work. Yeah, I think it would work. And he goes and he gives her this medicine. And miraculously, very, very quickly, she starts, you know, the color's coming back to face and she starts healing. She starts getting better. She starts getting, you know, uh, uh, you know, and, she, and she's sitting up in her bed. And the king is like, wow, it's unbelievable. He's like, this is crazy. So he goes to the king, goes to them and says, um, you know, because all you three came together, you're all going to be greatly rewarded. Two of you are going to be very, very high ministers. One of you are going to marry my uh, my my prince, my my daughter, and be, be the next uh, future king. He says, "Who is going to be the one who is going to decide? That's going to be up to you. You guys have to decide. All you guys have to know is for the rest of your lives, you guys are taken care of. Who is going to be the next? The, the you know the prince who's going to marry the princess that you guys have to decide. So each one was arguing, be like, listen." I made the telescope. I should really be the one, because if not for me, you guys would have been still over there. You wouldn't have known that anything that's, that's happening over there. So the guy says, true, true. Um, but, you know, I created the car. Hey, what good would your telescope and would have still been over there? By the time we would have got there, the, you know, the princess would have been dead. So um, the, everyone else is like, you know, good point. And then the guy with the medicine says, what would have helped if you would have been there? If you could have came there, you could have seen it. You could have came there, but you would have done nothing. I would, without my medicine, I wouldn't have done anything. So the king sees that, you know, it's getting heated. All the guys, uh, the bros are, you know, arguing with each other. He says, you know what? Let, let, my, let my daughter decide. Let my daughter decide. So they bring her in front of the daughter. And he says, listen, you know, these three gentlemen are the ones that saved you. You're the one who decide who you're going to marry. So she goes to the guy to the telescope first and says, you know what? You're right. If not for you, we wouldn't have been here. But to be honest with you, I don't, uh, I don't really need you anymore. I mean, you know, you, you are really, really, but I don't really need you. And she goes over to the guy with the car and says, you know, you are really, you know, because of you, I was saved. Really, it was because of your, your, your invention. But I, I really don't need you anymore. And she goes to the guy with the medicine. She says, listen, says, if I ever get sick anymore, I'm going to need you. And that's why I choose you. I choose you to be the one to, uh, um, you know, to, that, that I should get married to. So... The, um, you know, the story, the, the Benish High explains us this. It says we have three partners to create. To, to every creation, we have three partners. You have your, your mother, your father, and you have God. Now, which is the most important out of all the, crea- of the, of the creators? God. Is God. Why? Because even your parents need God. And, you know, you're coming in there and you have, you have three parts of the creation. And God is the most important one. You know why God? Because we need God in every single step in our life. And what we're doing is we're taking the, the, the matzah, we're breaking it. And we're putting this matzah all the way till the end. Because this matzah is representing that, the, the fact that we need God. And we're telling the kids and be like, you know, we're saving it till the end. You know what we're saving till the end? Because some, God is what we need though throughout the entire, the entire meal. We need to do God through the entire set of the entire going out of going out of Egypt. We need God. And that is the symbolization of us breaking it and putting it on the side. And the kids finding it. It's not just a ritual. It's a lesson that we need to learn for ourselves. Forget about the kids even. It's something that we need to learn for ourselves. That we, we the, what we need most in life. And what we're going to be the most successful in life is when we realize that we got to look for God. And when we find God, we realize we got everything. And this is, you know, this brings us to, to, to another point. To when you think about it, you know, we're sort of milking the story. You know, it's like happened three thousand three hundred years ago. God took us out of Egypt, and we're like every year we're like. Remember the time when he took us out of Egypt? Like, yeah, that was great. You know, and and you know we keep on rehashing the same story again and again and again. And why? Why are we doing it? So, um, I want to share with you this cute little, uh, um, that was a story, right? 
No. So that, the first one was. So, um, Wait, was was? first one was. First one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, first one. Yeah. So, he goes and, uh, this is an interesting story. So, um, Let's make this interesting. So there was uh, once a, a this guy living. Uh, you know, you, you are visiting. Let's make this story about you. You are visiting Mexico, and uh, you run into this family, great family. Uh, problem was is that he uh, he what? No, not Cancun. No. So you go in there and you 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 meet this family, and this family turns out they work for uh, El Chapo. Pablo Escobar, pick your choice, depending how old the story you want it to be. And so it's Pablo Escobar. It was a while ago. All right. So he goes and and um, and it turns out that this family sort of backstab Pablo Escobar, and you don't backstab Pablo Escobar. That you know, unless if you don't, if you want to live, you don't. So um, he put a bounty on their head, and it says the whole family. I want their heads over here, a million dollars a pop. When you put a number like that, they're not they're not surviving very long. No, they're not surviving long at all. Yeah, that's right. Um, and daddy's paying. So, you know, they, they, it, so, so you're sitting over there and you hear this and you hear the news and he says, you know what, you got a liking to this family. It's a nice family. You know, did a stupid thing. And he says, you know what, I'm going to save you. Get in my van. I'm traveling back to the States. I'll smuggle you in. So they go and they, they smuggle and they, and, and they're like, really, you'll do that? You know, you're risking your life because if they catch you with us, you know, you're dead me too. So he says, I don't know, you mean guys mean a lot to me, you know, you guys have kids, you know, you, you, no, come with me. And they go, and they start traveling, and they, they somehow miraculously made it across the border. But he didn't just drop them off at Texas over there, he's like, you know, the Pablo's guys are over here also. So I'm going to put you where you're really safe. And they started traveling across country, and, uh, you know, this guy who was saving them was a little interesting guy, he says, he says we're only eating 7-Eleven, we're only stopping in 7-Eleven, that, that's just the thing that he decided. And for like two weeks they're traveling, all they live on is whatever 7-Eleven sells. And uh, they're going, and they're traveling, and and uh, um, <laughs> and they they get to uh, they go they go so, so it was whatever is comparable to Seven Eleven. They go and um, they after two weeks of traveling, he finally feels like they're well well you know very very far away. Nothing to do with Pablo Escobar. I feel they're going to be safe in this like kick town in the mountains. I'd be like, here you're going to be saved. Uh, here you're going to be okay. You give him some startup money. You know, start yourself up over here. And uh, you know, the, the father there's with tears in his eyes, and he's like, you know, you did you did more than I could ever imagine. And I could ever possibly thank you for my family. You saved my family. Um, I'm, you know, what can I do to repay you back? Anything that you want, I can repay you. I, my, you know, my life is in your hands. And you're like, ah, eh, don't worry about it. It was nothing. It was like a finger. I, I took you out of uh, Mexico without any without any issues. So uh, he says, he says, really, I, I would love. I, I, I know the father of, the, of this of the family says, I would love to just you know you you, you did give me, give me let me do something for you. He says, ah, you know nothing. Don't worry about it. As you're leaving, you're like, you know what? And they're like, you know what? Maybe you could do something. And the guy turns around, and says, ah, anything. He says, you know, we travel for about two weeks. And the guy's like, yeah, I know, I really appreciate it. it. Took a long time. He says, yeah, but what I want is like, you know, the first two weeks of August is when we uh, when we travel. What I want you to do for the all at the end of time is I want you for for the next two, for every two weeks in the first two weeks of August, all you eat is Seven Eleven, nothing else. I want you only to eat Seven Eleven. So the guy's like, he's like, uh, you know, okay, I send you a card like Seven Eleven. Like why? Like you know, like it's like oh no no, I'm not finished yet. Because I want you to retell the story of how I saved you every single year. Every single year for the first two weeks in August, you're going to re-say, tell the story how I said you. Be like, you know, can we do something, you know, else? Can we do something else? So, uh, give me a second. So then, uh, so then he goes, and he says, no, oh, no, this is what's going to be. He's like, you know what, fine. Whatever you want, I'll do it. The question is, is this is what happened to us by God. God took us out of Egypt, 
and we're reliving the entire the entire uh, the entire scenario. And we're eating matzah because that's what we ate when we left Egypt. But why? What is it that we're constantly reliving our our past? Why are we doing that? And the answer is is that we're not. We're not reliving our past. And this is something that gets very, very confused when people come to Pesach. It's not something that happened many years ago and we're just relieving it. The, the Chazal tell us, the Torah tells us that when we go, when we say the story of Mitziat Mitzrayim, we're saying it ki'ilu, that we went out of Mitziat Mitzrayim. Which means that we're saying it as if we went out of Mitziat Mitzrayim. And the question is asked, we didn't go out of Egypt. At least not that we remember. We're here. We're in New York. What Egypt? You know, some of you have never maybe been to Egypt. What are you going out of Egypt? And the answer is, is that Egypt represents something that's the, that people go through sufferings in life. Every year we have through our own troubles, our own tribulations. We have our own problems in life. And just like God took us out of Egypt 3,300 and somewhat years ago, so too in the future and every single year comes Pesach and we realize that God is going to, just like God took us out of Egypt, God's going to take us out of our problems. We have money problems. Comes Pesach, we realize it's not anybody else. God is going to take us out. We're going out of our own Yitzhak time. We're going out of our own problems in our life. And that is what's happening. But not something that we're reliving, something that happened a long time ago. It's something that's happening right now. Every single year when we're coming out, and there's some people, by the way, that they retell their personal stories. That, you know, for example, people that left the Holocaust, some of them would actually retell how they got escaped. You know, comes out of, out of the Passover at night, the Seder, they would go and they would say that. Yeah. Mil Rabinovich explains and he says, you know, just like God did not send a messenger to take the Jews out of Egypt, so too that we have to realize that God is going to take us out of each of our problems. This is a very cute story that Ben Ishai says. I don't know if I said it here before, but um, there was once a guy who was who was traveling. And, you know, he was traveling, he was walking, you know, down the, um, you know, down the, you know, traveling like this, these, uh, the jungle, the forest. And, you know, men, how, when men walk, you know, what do they do? They, they, they space out. I mean, you know, you stop a man in the street and be like, what do you think about right now? The guy would be like, you know, he'd be like in shock. He'd be like, uh, nothing, nothing. You know, a woman's walking down the street. You stop her dead in her track and say, what were you thinking about right now? She'll be, she'll list like 17 things. It's like, what am I going to eat tonight? How am I going to continue with my diet? What am I wearing? What am I shopping? Am I, when am I going to turn that? When am I going to, you know, there's like 17 things that she's going through. You all right over there? <coughs> You're surprised that woman thinks so much? All right. So, um, but I, you know, men, men like space out. You know, we're, we're not, uh, you know, we're, we're, we do one thing. And the idea is also similar, you know, you see a woman cooking, right? A woman who's cooking. How does she cook? She has a baby in one hand. She's talking on the phone. She's reading the recipe. Meanwhile, she's writing an essay somehow, and she's cooking. I see a guy cooking. He's like looking at the instruction manual and what to, how to make this chicken. And he's like, and he cannot focus on anything. One thing. And then he's like, he's like, all right, what's original? He's like, anybody know what original? You know, like they have no, I, we have no idea. You know, unless we're, we're, you know, we do everything, we're, we're solely focused on one thing. Women are good at multitasking, men are, are less as good. So this guy is walking down the street, you know, spacing out. He's walking in the, in this jungle, and he, all he has is walking stick. And he's spacing out, and suddenly he just comes up in front of him, is, is, he sees, you know, literally like five feet in front of him, a lion. And he's like, he's like, oh man. He's like, he's like, what am I supposed to do now? You know, he was spacing out. Had he saw in the few, in the, in the, he would have had some time to do something. Now he literally sees the lion is in a pouncing position. So he's like, he's like thinking, he's like racking his brain back and forth. Like, what am I supposed to do? He's like, I can't run. I can't fight it. I can't, I literally can't do anything. And he has this walking stick and he thinks, he says, you know what? He says, maybe this, this lion has been around other humans before. I'm going to pretend that I have a gun. 
and he takes out this piece of walking stick and he points it as a rifle and he points it at this uh, at this uh, at this line and this line is you know walking more and more closer to to him and he's staring and he's going and he, and he starts shaking now it's like the line is you know literally like it's licking his lips it's like his supper is right here and you know he closes his eyes he's the lines right in front of him and he shoots you know he he well he shoots he screams like a bam so he, you know from the loudest possible that he has to maybe scare the line off and he's like he puts it he's like bam and he shoots the his fake his fake thing, and he like you know he waits a second. He opens his his uh, his like one eye, and he sees there's there's blood coming out of the lion's side, and he's like he's like he opens up both eyes and he's like he looks at the stick, he looks at the lion, he looks at the stick, he looks at the lion, and he starts smiling. He's like I have a, I have a magic stick. Wow. He's like this is this is crazy. <laughs> so what he didn't realize is that there was a hunter two hundred yards away. That was seeing this whole commotion, and he was aiming his rifle. And the second that he screamed "Ben," the right the guy just happened to shoot the shoot the the um, the lion. So he's walking, he's walking, he's walking. Uh, you know, he's walking away. This guy's thinking that he has, you know, his walking stick is a magic stick, and he's running, he's walking, he's walking off. And meanwhile, he doesn't, you know, he, this is this is us in life. We're in life. We think that we close the deal. That we went, that we, we made business, we made money, we did this, and we accomplished this in life. We're the guy with the walking stick, and God is up there pulling all the strings and shooting the actual lion. And we think we are, we are the ones. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who created this, this empire. I'm the one who did whatever it is that I think that I did. And we don't realize that it's nothing to do with you. It's all God. And the, one of the fundamental things that we learn from, from Pesach is Emunah. We have to realize that everything is God. God took us out of Egypt, not us. We didn't go out of Egypt. We, there was miraculous stuff that we could never do. It was very obvious that it was nothing else other than God. And comes Pesach, every Pesach is a Muna building exercise. It's we learn faith. We learn about that there's nothing else other in our life other than God. When we realize that, you're really going out of your, out of your troubles. If you think about it, people have a lot of troubles. When do they, when do they start feeling better? When they realize there's a reason and purpose for things. You know, everybody, you know, it says that you come out, every Pesach, you come out of your own Yitzhak Mitzvah, you come out of all your troubles. When you realize that everything is God, and that God is in control of everything, and that everything happens to your life is only from God, and you learn that lesson, life becomes easier. Life becomes fun. And life becomes full of blessing. Unbelievable amount of blessing. It's tremendous blessing that comes from these, from these things. It is so imperative, this, this lesson that's learned from Pesach. Do we have time for anyone on one last story? Alright. So... This story I heard many years ago from uh, Zachariah Walsing. Great, great story. So you have to listen to the details because it comes into as as words. Um, I don't think so. So what? I don't know. Um, I think April 11th. You can Google it. Ten April 10th. Yeah. 2017. No, no, he's not. He's joking. So um, there was once a king. There's a lot of stories tonight. You can learn a lot, a lot by stories. But the point is, is not to hear the story and be like, oh, cool story, good stuff. Let's move on in life. The point is to wake up and realize that you got to do something with your life. There is, uh, there was once a king. This king, um, this king was very, very beloved by all, by, it was just like, you know, it was like an awesome king. This king, like, everybody loved this king. This king, you know, great rules, great policies, uh, whatever, some, it's a, it's a parable. It's mashal. He go, um, and, and, but the one, there was one problem. The king did not have any kids. And they really wanted the bloodline to continue because the, the, the entire, the entire kingdom prospered so well under this, under his rule. 
So every single, every single, go, every single person goes and they pray to their own god and they they worship their own thing. They're like, please, you know, grant this this king uh, and queen a child so we can have a continuation of this of this uh, uh, of this line. And every you know mother is going out there and grandmother says, you know, this herb is going to help you conceive and this one. Everybody's literally sending gifts. Everyone's doing those something. Well, so or, yeah, herbs. So um, you know, but uh, you know, nothing's happening. But after many many years. Suddenly, there's a tremendous celebration. The queen is pregnant. The queen is pregnant. They make a church by the king. Oh, yeah. So there's a celebration. Otherwise, it would not be a celebration. So she goes, and uh, the king goes, and you know, when the when the when the time is for the baby to be delivered, you know, the baby gets you know the delivery. It goes by Hashem. Everything works great, amazing, and the Mazatov, it's a boy, and the king throws an craziest feast that nobody even greater than his coronation day. Out of proportion. No taxes for everybody. It was like, it was like an unbelievable off the hook party. And, you know, everybody, the entire kingdom was all happy. The birds were chirping. Everything was green. Everything was lovely. Everything was delicious. Everything was amazing. There was a few people, you know, that, a uh, few powerful people in the kingdom that didn't really like the king so much. Cause they, you know, they were the rich ones and they felt that they could have gotten bigger tax cuts and they wanted to, they wanted to basically put their own puppet in the, in the kingdom. So they were, they were really happy that the king didn't have, you know, was, was getting older and he wasn't going to survive and, you know, they're going to be somebody else. But now that they realize that there is, you know, there's a prince, they, they were not happy about it. So, um, yeah, anyways, this, this, you know, they, they're trying to figure out ways to, to do something for, you know, to get, get rid of this prince. But, uh, you know, God has other plans and God sort of took this, you know, their plans into, into action. And this kid, this, this prince became really, really sick by the age of two years old. And he was extremely, extremely sick. And, um, so they call in the best doctors. They fly it in the best doctors from the entire world. No matter the cost, heal. This is our only child. This is our pride and joy. Heal our child. If whoever, and they, they put it out a thing, whoever heals a child will never be lacking for the rest of their life. We'll put you with the wealthiest of the wealthiest. So, you know, granted, you get that type of thing, every doctor is coming. Every single doctor comes in there and they try and this kid has this rare crazy disease and he's getting sicker and sicker. And, you know, this kid is laying, laying in bed, his, his, you know, his, uh, color left his face. He literally has, you know, no energy left in him and the parent, you know, the parents are getting sick. They're like, what could we possibly do? Is there anybody else? One of his advisors all of a sudden stands up and he says, listen, he says, you know, there is a certain healer, and he's known as a ear quotes healer, that lives in the woods, you know, and he does all these, you know, stuff with, with uh, vegetations and, you know, all these, you know, natural remedies. So the king says, what are you waiting for? Bring him in. And he says, you know, you know, why didn't you bring him in earlier? He says, you know, like I said, this guy is a little bit of, you know, he's, he's in the woods all the time. You know, he deals, yeah, he's like, he's like, the king says, I don't care if he talks to animals, bring him in here if he has a chance of saving my child. So they go and they send a whole delegation out to, to, uh, to the woods to find this guy. So they go and, you know, with advisors leading it, he says, listen, I know there's a guy that heals it. Do you know where this guy lives? And they're like, yeah, you gotta go way deep into the woods. So they're, they're going deeper and deeper into the woods and they see, you know, a hut over here, a hut over there. And they go over to them and they say, do you know where this guy lives? And um, he says, "Yeah, you got to keep on going." They walking and walking to literally the heart of the forest, and they see this like rock that sort of looks like a house. And they're like, "You got to be kidding me!" It's like completely camouflaged. And they go in, and uh, they they see like this makeshift door, and they start knocking. And they knock on the door, and they 
you know, and, and the, this guy opens up the door. You know, it literally looks like a guy from the forest, you know, like disheveled hair, a long beard. And he says, can I help you guys? And they'll be like, are you the famous healer? And he's like, I am. What can I do for you? He says, listen, the king, you know, his son is very sick, and he requests you to come to see if you can do anything. So the guy starts laughing, you know, like one of those crazy laughs, like starts, you know, hysterically laughing. He's like, are you kidding me? He says, you guys always shunned my medicine. You guys hated my medicine. Now you're going to come back all of a sudden and want my, what changed all of a sudden? And they're all like, to be honest, we still don't believe your medicine, but there's no other choice. So the king wants to try it. And the guy says, listen, I, I heard about this king. This king is an amazing guy. You know, he, only good things we hear about him. Uh, not a problem. I'll come with you guys. And he goes and he, he collects his, his herbs in his bag and they make their way back to, uh, back to the kingdom. And, uh, they go to the palace and the guy looks, um, the guy looks to this, this, this disheveled forest dude, walks into the, to the, to the prince's room, takes a look at him, inspects him, goes from his feet to his head to behind his ears, looking at the weird places. And the guy says, I think I could do something. So the guy, the king says, by all means, go ahead, go try. He says, you'll be greatly rewarded. And the guy says, I don't care about money. I live in the woods. I don't need money. He says, but I have requests. King says, "What's your request? I need to be alone with the room, alone, me and the kid alone in the room. Nobody else is allowed to be here to, to see what I'm going to do with my medicine." So the you know the advisor would be like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, yo, buddy!" Says so you're talking about the prince over here. You're not being alone in the room. You're getting supervised and you're going to get guards. So the guy says, "You know, fine. You don't want me to do it? No need to. Send me back home." You know, this is playing a tough ball. So the king says, "No, no, no. no. This is wait. This is, you know, he saw his his kid was on his deathbed. He says, "Do whatever you have to do. Whatever it is that you need, you have my full access. My my kingdom is at your disposal." So um, they say fine. They take everybody out of the room, and this guy's working on this. This he takes he takes this herb and this herb, and then he sends for like some crazy thing no one ever heard of, and they bring it to him, and he grinds it, and this this excruciating bitter smell emanates from the room, and you know, and and he you know it's so bitter that he had to add like a tub of honey just to make it just to make it just a bearable uh, to get all that bitterness out, and he goes and he opens up um, the king's bottom lip, and he starts in sque- you know squeezing a few drops on the under his lip, and it's so bitter that you know the, the He's like packing. And every like 30 minutes, he puts another drop, another drop under there. And after like two hours, suddenly the kid, you know, you know, he's, he's, get, he's like physically getting better. It's like this, this thing is like working like super fast. It's like crazy, like steroids type of uh, situation going on. And uh, he goes and he's getting healthier and healthier. And after about three, four hours, the kid is already sitting in his bed from being on the deathbed to sitting on his bed, this, this little baby uh, kid. And they, they open the door and the king comes in and he sees his kid. He runs over and gives him a hug. He's feeling warm. He was cold before. He's like, this is unbelievable. He says, Why, where were you our whole lives? Your, your medicine is much better than our medicine. And the king goes over to him and says, whatever you want, it's yours. Anything you want in my kingdom, it's yours. Take, just name it and it's yours. The old man, you know, from the from the forest is like, was like, listen, he says, money, I don't need, fame, I don't need. I'm a guy who lives in the forest. He says, but I noticed, you know, you, you know, as I was healing your kid, you know, the kid is a bright kid for being so young. He was, able, you know, he started asking questions. Very, very bright kid. Um, he says, I have a lot of knowledge, and he says, you no, know, I'm getting old on with my years. I want to teach him my knowledge. That's all I request. The king says, done and done. So awesome. And the guy says, you know, I have one more request. And the king says, what is that? He says, listen, you, you, you know, your son is very, you know, is very sick and, um, he needs supervision under all times. And ju- it, just in case if something happens, I want to request that I want to, you know, I want to live with him. I want to live in the same room. So listen, I'm a man of the forest. I blend into the shades. I blend in. He's not even going to notice I'm here. You know, this, the, you know, the, the prince's room was bigger than most people's houses. You know, he's like, he's like, I'm going to sit in the corner over there. No one's going to know I exist. I'm going to teach him in the day. And that's, that's where I'll say, and, you know, this way, if he ever gets sick, God forbid, I'll be right over there instantly and, and I'll be able to heal him. The king was a little bit nervous about that because that, that's all, you know, weird. Uh, but he says, you know what? Fine. You did what you did. 
figured, bless you. He, so he figured, you know, you got it. And fine, so this kid goes and this, this old man moves in and, you know, from the young age, you know, he's like, you know, trying to teach this kid a little bit and he realizes the kid is too young, says, you know what, we'll wait. And he's living in the shadows in this kid's room, you know, just, you know, living his life. And, you know, a few years go by and this, uh, you know, this, this group of people that didn't like the king, you know, got heard that the, you know, they heard that the kid, the kid got better, so they, so they have to, you know, revamp their plans. And they hired the best kidnappers in all the land, you know, like literally the most professionals. And, you know, one day it's the middle of the night and the king there's this old man here is this in you know people climbing in through the window you know he hears he hears a rustle so you know very very quietly but he was a man of the woods he was used to you know all these little sounds and he quickly gets up and he looks over there and he sees there there's like four men that just climbed in through the window and he sees they run right to the kid they put something in the kid's mouth the kid's like you know doesn't open doesn't open his mouth doesn't do that and they're like within three seconds they're outside the window it's like well these guys are crazy quick they're like so he's like quickly thinking very quickly what am i what should i do so he's like, I have, you know, he, no, they kidnapped him. They wanted to kidnap him. They, he's like, he's like, I got two options. I start screaming for help, but if I start screaming for help, I'll be killed. Um, number two is if I go, actually, I have three options. If I go run to get help, by the time I, these guys are so quick, by the time I get help, I come back, they're going to be gone. So he decides, he decides there's only one thing that I could do. I'm going to follow them. So he goes and he stealthily, he also climbs out of the window and he sees these guys are like ninjas. They're like, you know, flipping off the thing. And he's, shh, guys. So he goes and he, he jumps off. We'll be done in a few minutes. He goes and he jumps and, and he, and he's literally keeping up with them as a man of the woods. He's already used to this, uh, this situation. And he goes and he runs from place to place and he's like trying to figure out a way to signal to the king, you know, or the, the guards to get them. But they're so good, these people, that they're out instantly. All he's able to do is just run after them. So he runs after them. They, they, they go straight to the docks. They go straight to the docks and they load this, you know, it, it doesn't even look like a kid anymore. They put him in a crate and they did a great job. And they load it right into this, uh, to the, to the, to the ship. And he's looking around. It's the middle of the night. There's no one there. And he's like looking back and forth. He's like, there's nothing that he could possibly do. And they're boarding the ship and he sees they're going to set sail. So he dives into the water and he swims to the back end of the ship. And, you know, and he's, and he basically holds on to that, to, to, there's one of those, like, parts of the anchor that's still holding on. He grabs onto that and the ship sets uh, sail. And he's sitting over there. And he's sitting there, you know, night turns into day, and he's still sitting over there, he's like, when are they docking? And he decides, you know what, you know, I gotta get on, I can't live like this, I'm gonna, do-, you know. So he goes and he, you know, waits for the next night, and he sneaks back on, onto the deck, and he hides in the basement, he gets, grabs and steals some food, eats some food, and he hides, he finds the kid over there, and he, and he, um, and he hides next to the kid, you know, stealthily in the, in the shadows. Nobody even knows that he's there. And, uh, they travel for days and days, and turns into weeks, and finally they, they end up docking in a certain, uh, place. And he, he, you know, he sees the guys come down. They take the they take the the crate out, and he somehow manages to go, you know, sneak right behind this uh, this crate, and he's following this crate. And he realizes, you know, after they they put the crate on the wagon, he's following the wagon, and they pull this kid out of the out of the crate, and they put him in handcuffs. And he realizes that he's getting now sold as a slave. They realize, you know, these people, I guess, they don't want to kill, they don't want blood on their hands, but they they decide to kidnap him and sell him as a slave in a faraway land. So he goes and he follows them to the, you know, he sees like a six-year-old kid by this point in time, or eight-year-old kid. It's like, who's going to buy this kid? So um, there was what? Prince. He's a prince, but no one knows that. They're not going to say he's a prince. So they go and they put this kid for sale. No, they see a kid, everyone driving, who's going to buy a slave as a kid? So they're going, meanwhile, there's this, you know, fat duke that comes by, and he's like, he's like, you know what, I got a son, and he's like the same age as this kid, and my son, you know, is a mean kid, no one likes him, he's a big brat. Um, I'll buy him a friend. Let me buy him a friend. So he goes and, and he, see, he goes in a bid and he, and, he, and he bids on this kid. He bids on this kid and he wins, he wins a bid. So this duke goes, this fat duke goes, takes this kid, and he brings it home. He comes home, he screams, Dudley, I bought you a friend. 
And he goes, and Dudley comes waddling through, and he's like, what you got for me, Dad? And he's like, look, look, he's like, I got you a buddy. He's a, he's a friend for you. And he's like, cool. You know, he grabs him. This kid was like, a, you know, Dudley was a rough guy. And, he, and, you know, he goes and he plays. And then, you know, they, they played together for about a few months. And this spoiled brat of uh, Dudley, Duke's son, he decides, you know, he's like, I'm bored. I'm bored of this guy. I don't want to play with him anymore. So he says, you know what, send him back. So, send him back. You know, so the, the, guy, the son says, you know what? You know what would make me really happy, Dad? He's like, and what, what would make you happy? Dudley, anything that you want, you'll do. Make him work in the kitchen. I want to see him work. He's like a sadistic little twisted kid. And he says, I want to see this, uh, this, you know, nine-year-old work. Um, guy, the Duke says, do whatever you want. So you're, you're friends, you're a slave, do whatever you want with it. So he says, fine, you're working around the kitchen. So now this kid, uh, you know, this, this prince now goes and he starts working in the kitchen. And he's working in the kitchen and then he starts working and he works the brutal, you know, the heat and this and he's cleaning little, like the man version of Cinderella. And he is going in there and, you know, he's, he's, you know, life is just brutal for him. He wakes up, he's a slave, he's this. And years go by. And 10 years go by, 12 years go by, and all he remembers is, is only being a slave. He blocked out already anything that, that, that was previous. And meanwhile, throughout all this time, the, the, this, this, this uh, old man was, was sitting over there and he was watching what was going on. And he was trying to figure out, I need to get away to save this, to save this son. But he didn't want to leave the country, go to the kingdom and call somebody back, cause then he's like, that's not gonna, it's, it's gonna be terrible because, uh, you know, I'll, they'll, they'll sell him to somebody else and I'll lose him. So he started sending letters. He started sending letters to the king. He says, listen, I know where your son is. And this is, you know, like about, you know, he constantly tried a way of, of smuggling him out. Nothing was doing. When nothing was doing, he started sending these letters. Meanwhile, uh, back in the palace, everything was going haywire. The king found out that somebody's like, he's like, whoever gets me back, this my child, endless reward. And they send out, you know, spies throughout the entire land. They send out these, the, you know, the pictures throughout all the kingdoms in the nearby regions. Says if this is, if you see this kid, bring him back. And if you don't bring him back and we find out that's there, then we're going to full on war with you. And literally a threat and, the, and like the entire kingdoms were torn apart trying to find this kid. But they, they, were, they realized this and they brought them to even a farther, further away land. And, um, you know, meanwhile, and there was a reward, which anybody brings back this kid. So a few years go by, and people start saying, oh, I found your kid. And the king says, yeah, yeah, bring him, bring him, bring him in. And they bring him in, it's like, this is obviously not their kid. You know, and, and the, you know, it's like the boy who cried wolf. Eventually the king, you know, gave up. And he says, you know, there's so many people trying to claim this reward and saying that they found the prince, and they're bringing some random kid in. He says, I don't believe it anymore. And this is when the letters started coming in from this old man saying, listen, I have the prince, I know where he is. And the king says, yeah, you and everybody else, I don't believe it. And that's why he didn't even send anybody. So it's been years, and this, this prince is sitting over there, and, uh, you know, as a, as a kitchen slave, and doing, you know, going through the worst horrors of his life. Finally, the, the, this, this, uh, Duke, this, uh, Duke's kid, D- Dudley decides, you know what, he's, he's bored in life, and, you know, he's like in his early 20s, he's like, you know what, I want to do something fun, uh, what am I do? He's like, you know, I have a great idea. There's a certain woman who works in the kitchen, you know, like, a, one of those women, you know, 450 pounds, uh, has a full-grown beard. <laughs> That in the beard has more beard, and you know she was literally like the Shrek of the of the country. And you know Dudley goes and he starts smiling. He says, "You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna make we're gonna make my old slave marry marry this woman." And he goes, he's like, "Oh, this is gonna be great. This is gonna be hilarious. This is gonna be a great wedding. We're gonna make a very fancy wedding too. We're gonna make it a professional." And, and yeah, he was. So he goes and he calls his father. He says, "Dad, you know what's gonna make me happy?" He's like, "Dudley, whatever's gonna make you happy, you know I'm gonna, you know I'm there for you." He's like. I want the prince to marry marry Mrs. Shrek. Uh, you know, they codenamed her. So um, he's like, he's like, listen, Dudley. He says, you know, you put him through so much already. He's like, he's like, I, I know who this woman is. He's like, come on, she's going to eat him for lunch. You know, 
don't do that to him. Give some mercy. And then he's like a full, you know, grown man. He throws a tantrum. It's like, Dad, I want this. Nothing's going to make me happy. Why don't you want to make me happy? You don't want me to be happy? I want, that's like, you know, after a while, like, you know, what, okay, whatever. I don't have the headache for this. Whatever it is that you want, you know, do it. Go throw your party, do your marriage, do whatever it is. So, very, you know, so happy. He said, he creates this professional, you know, uh, you know, invitation, you know, the, this, this slave with his marrying, uh, Mrs. Shrek, and it sends it out throughout the entire, entire, you know, ca- uh, palace, and, uh, then, it, you know, and then he tells, he was, he wanted to be the one who tells his, his, uh, the slave, the prince, and he says, he's like, guess what? And he's like, he's like, what, your majesty? What, 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 why, why are you so smiling? Is there anything good news? He's like, oh, it's great news. <laughs> it's unbelievable news. Um, and he's like, what is this? Like, he's like, you're getting married. He's like, I, I am. He's like, what do you mean I'm getting married? He's like, yeah, yeah, you're getting married to Mrs. Shrek. And he's like, he's like, come again? He's like, he's like, he's like, oh, come on, please. And he's like, he's like, you got anything but that. Please, uh, you know, anything that. And then he goes, and he's like, oh, yeah, gotta get ready. Get into shape. It's gonna be in one week's time. So the, the, you know, the old man is still in, in the picture over here and he hears what's happening. He says, he says, you know what? I gotta get this kid out of there now. This guy's a prince. He's gonna marry somebody. He's not gonna, you know, he needs to get out of the, the, of this duke's castle well before this wedding. And he goes and he sneaks into the palace and, you know, he's waiting for this, pr- this, this prince in his, in his slave quarters. And, you know, he's able to, to sneak in very well. He walks in there and the slave walks in depressed, downtrodden. You know, he hears he got the news that he's gonna marry this, this, uh, this witch of his, um, and he goes and he walks in there and he sees, he gets in a sudden shock of his life. He's this old man he's never seen before in his life. And he's like, who are you? How'd you get in here? He's like, we don't have time for that. Yeah. He said, doesn't remember him from back then. He said, we don't have time for that. We got to get out of here right now. He's like, who are you? I've never seen you before. He's like, he's like, you know, you're a prince. And he, until he tells us to the prince, he's like, I'm a what? He's like, you're, you know, you're a prince. You have a faraway castle and you, you're, you know, you have a big kingdom. Your father and your mother really love you. Like, what are you talking about? I'm an orphan. I was born and raised in the kitchen throughout my entire life. I'm no prince. And the old man says, no, 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 you don't remember. And he's trying to describe the palace. And the guy says, you dude, you old man, you're crazy. Get out of here. What are you doing over here? I had a rough day. Leave me alone. So old man seeing, he says, you know what? It's not going to happen. He goes out and um, he, he starts collecting a bunch of herbs. He collects a bunch of herbs and he starts making the medicine, the bitter medicine that he made years, years ago. And he comes back to him a few hours later and he's like, you know, he pops up into his room and he's like, he's like, how do you get, how do you keep on getting in here? And he's like, the old man's like, enough of that. He says, I have this, I have something I need you to, I need you to drink. And he's like, dude, I, this is the first time I've seen you in my life. Maybe it's poison. So what are you going to kill me? And he's like, he's like, listen, I saw Mrs. Trek, you know, you better hope that it's poison. And the prince is like, you know what, good point. And he says, he says, yeah, whatever, I'll drink it, I don't care at this point in time. And um, he goes and he starts, he takes a little sip and he spits it out. The thing is so bitter, he's like, he's like gagging, he almost threw up. He's like, he's like what, can, can you kill me into something more decent than just uh, something so bitter? He's like, relax, this is not something that's going to kill you. I want you just to taste a little bit. And he puts a little bit under his, uh, under his tongue. And he's like, this is disgusting. And he's like, just, just one more drop. He puts another drop. And he's like, this is terrible. But then as he's tasting it, as he's tasting it, he says, you know what? He says, I've had this before. I've had this bitter taste in my, my mouth before. And the, king, and, the, and the old man says, you have. And he says, take another drop. And he takes another drop and another drop. It's like, he gets like this, this disgusting shock. But then it's like, he remembers something. And he's racking his brain. Where did I drink this before? And as he's racking his brain, he's going through the, 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 you know, the memories of it in his mind. He suddenly remembers, he's taking this the, every sip. And he's like, he remembers a big room. And, you know, purple curtains. And velvet couches. And servants. And he's like, he's like and, the, and, the, and this uh, old man is described to him. says, you were really a prince. He says, you were 
kidnapped when you were really young. So this was medicine that I gave you when you were long, long, uh, you know, when you were very sick. And the prince is like, he's like, you know what, you're right. He's like, he's like, I remember something. I remember actually having a mother and father. And not like they, the stories they've been told, telling me. And the the old man says, listen, we got to get out of here now. I've been trying to get you out of here for years, but there's no luck. But we're out of time. We're getting out of here right now. And he goes and he and he, you know, basically somehow smuggle this guy out of the, out of this duke. They go and he he teaches him in the forest for like two days on how to be stealthy. And he says, we're going to sneak on a ship and we're going to go where it takes us because then you know everyone's going to look around for this to the runaway slave. And they're somehow they're able to go and they go from place to place for months of traveling. They finally end up in the kingdom. They finally end up in the kingdom. And this old man so proud, he walks up to the gate and he sees like the, the entire place does not look like it used to everything is like you know broken and this they, they, you know everybody went into depression over there and he goes over there and you know he goes to the king and queen who's still alive and he says you know your son is home You're, you know he sends send messages to the son so the gates where they were like are you kidding me you're like the millionth and a half person that came over here it's like get out of here old man the, the, the son is dead they know it and they said the, he says listen I'm the old man that saved the son's life he says you don't remember I tell Tell this to the king. It says, tell him the guy who, the, the old man from the woods is back with his son. And all I'm asking for is two minutes of his time. So, they send this, uh, this message to the king, and the king says, oh, I remember that guy. He says, we thought he fell off from the face of the earth. In fact, they thought that he was actually in it, because he left with, yeah. They thought that he was in it. He's like, what's going back? So he says, bring him in. Let's see what he, what he has to say. So, uh, they, you know, they bring him in, and, you know, he's sitting over there, and the, the king and the queen is over there, they're all still depressed, they're looking down, they didn't even look up, they didn't even turn around from the chair, they're like, what do you want, old man? He says, were you the guy who kidnapped him? He's like, no, what are you kidding me? He's like, I was following, he's telling him the whole story. And the king's like, you know, like, yeah, sure, you and everybody else with their own stories. And the, the old man says, listen, all I'm asking you is look at your son. Just look at him. Just take one, you could see, he looks like you! And the king open, you know, picks up his head and he steers at him. He's like, that does look like me. And he's like, he looks up and he's like, he's like, is that you, my son? And they get reunited and they, you know, there's, there's a, there's a tremendous, he goes to the old man and says, I don't know what I could do for you. He says, you saved my son twice. This is the parable. They're coming on, on, on Pesach. Pesach, we're eating stuff. You know, we have this, we have these rituals. You know, these, we eat, we eat the bitter yeah. herbs. We eat the matzah. Pesach, matzah, maro. We eat all these things. And, and then they're telling us, hey, guess what, guys? You are kings. You're a princess. You're, you're, you guys are ruling the world. You guys are amazing. And we're talking about, what are you talking about? And God says, you know what, you know Taste, taste this. Taste this. And we're tasting the matzah, and in our souls be like, you know what? This tastes familiar. We've eaten this before. We've eaten this before, and, we, and the more we eat it, and the more we go into this, you know, we've been in this situation before. You know what it was before? 3,300 years ago plus, when we left Egypt, that's when we have it. We're reliving the entire situation. The entire Pesach is not something that happened so long ago. We're reliving it day in and day out of Pesach. It's a time that we remember who we are. It's a time that we remember where we came from and what our value is. We're living in a generation that we are so far away from God, unfortunately. And you, we have so many people in this room that, that you know, I, I want to share with you one last thing over here that, 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 that we'll, we'll finish off with this that, you know, popped in my head. Listen, this is amazing. There was a, um, there was two people, um, that, you know, back in the time of the Chazonish, there were two people that became, uh, that want, the two Chilonim, two secular Jews came back. Now, there's a lot of people doing Baal Tshuva. You know, they're coming back to become religious. Back then, there were, there were, it was very rare that people became religious. So it was in, it was in Israel, and these two secular Jews come into this, you know, to this town in B'nai Blah, and they say, listen, we want to, we want to learn about Judaism. So right away, it was suspicious, you know, like, cause the secular and the Jewish, you know, the religious, it was, it was something going back and forth. Maybe they were sending us spies, they want to try to get us in trouble. So they didn't know what to do, they asked the big rabbi, they asked the Chazonish, says, rabbi, what should we do? We don't know what to do. That's how, that's how rare it was. It says there's two secular Jews 
asking about God. What should we do? Should we send them away? Like, so the rabbi says, no, 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 teach them. Teach them to Allah. And they go and they, 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 they start teaching them to Allah. And these two Jews came, came completely back. Teenagers came from the kibbutz. They came 100% religious, kind of about Shuvah. So afterwards, they, they went back to the Chazonish and says, Rabbi, tell us, what merit does these two Jews have that they came back for, you know, to religion? So the Rabbi says, says, you know, you know, there was, you know, back, back when, and you look at, think about yourselves, as all your ancestors, they were religious at one point in time. They were religious at one point in time, and there was somewhere down the line that one child decided, you know, not to be religious anymore. And you know how hard it is for a parent to see that the child is not religious anymore? It, there's nothing more that it hurts them more as a religious parent that sees that their, their, their child doesn't want to become religious. So what do they do? They started crying to God. And they cry and they cry and they open up the elim and says, God, please bring back, bring my child home. Bring him back to the fold. Bring her back to the fold. And uh, God takes those prayers and, you know, not always can he use those prayers for that particular child because that particular child used its own free will to go out of the fold. And if God forces this child back in, then he's not using his free will anymore. It's, it's, it's inhibiting the free will. So God takes those prayers and he puts them on the side. He puts them on the sides and he saves them. And he saves them. And then that's what we see now a generation that come. There's so many Jews that are coming back becoming religious. religious. And so you want to know why they're becoming back religious? Because of their parents. Because of their grandparents. Now I'm looking around the room over here. And I'm fair to say that many of you guys, you know, your parents are not that religious. So, but you're yet, you're on a Tuesday night. We're, we're 11.47 at Tuesday night. Close to midnight, you're sitting learning to walk. You ever wonder why? There's so many of your friends that are watching movies now. Maybe they're embarrassed. Maybe they're sleeping. But yet you guys are over here and you're sitting and you're learning to why. You ever wonder why? And I'll tell you the secret why. It's because you had a grandparent. A grandparent that shed tears and cried and cried and says, please bring back my child home. Please bring it back. And you know what? And God says, you know what? I'm going to hold it up. Because it's going to be a Tuesday, and Avenue C is going to bring back your child over there. And we're coming over here, this is the time that we realize who we are. And we have to realize who we come from. We're not just a nation that just out of the blue, we have some history. We're not. We're not reliving an old past. We're reliving the future, we're reliving the present, and that's right now. And you got to take this into your control. you got to take this into your mind. This is the time where you go and you realize, I see God. This is the time of Pesach when you realize, I see God and I realize who I am. Make your parents proud. Make your grandparents proud. I guarantee you, you're here today because you have some grandparents that cared, that cared a lot about God. And they're looking down at you and they're saying, please make the right decision. And I'm coming to you and I'm saying, please make the right decision. We're coming to Passover. Make sure you keep it the right way. We're coming to Shabbat. Make sure you keep it the right way. You don't know what you're going to do for your parents. And Mizrat Hashem, may this year we have tremendous, tremendous success. And we'll see complete, complete returning to God. And when we see the true salvation of the Pesach, may we all get out of our own uh, exodus and our own troubles and tribulations. And we all have a complete salvation, a complete Yitzhak time from our, our, our problems. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.